Okay, we know it's an antigen. We know it has antigenic and anabolic effects. We know it turns on antigen receptor-related genes. But the binding affinity, the, the test that suggests it binds the antigen receptor shows that it doesn't bind the antigen receptor. So what does that then tell us about the tests of it binding the estrogen receptor? I'm hanging out with Scott Stevenson for the next episode of Bustle Minds. We're going to dig into the science of anadrol. Plus, we got a question. Can a little bit of T3 help you grow muscle? Then is it possible to grow without testosterone in your body? How much protein do you need while you're on cycle? And we've got some tips to help protect you from tearing muscles in the gym. All of that and a bunch more, guys. Listen, if you are new to our content, let me encourage you to hit the subscribe button and the bell. Guys, we have several bodybuilding podcasts coming out each week. Tons of education and entertainment from IFB pros, coaches, and educators in our industry. And listen, we're here to all help you get better at this sport that we love. Have a good time and try to be safe while we're doing it. All right, guys, let's get to Scott. What's up, guys? Welcome back to Muscle Minds with Scott Stevenson. I'm Scott McNally. All of our programming is brought to you by truenutrition.com. You can use our code THINK for some additional savings on high-quality health and performance supplements. Uh, feel free to drop me a message if you want to talk about flavors, if you have any questions about any of their products. We're also brought to you by supplementsource.ca. If you're in Canada, you can get some ephedrine there, but you can also get a bunch of other stuff, uh, and they have great deals on uh, short dated, label change, uh, discontinued products. So check them out. And of course, go to B-Y-O-B-B coach, that's beyourownbodybuildingcoach.com and check out Scott's book there. Or go to Amazon, you can get the hardcover. Just like old school people, we used to have entire buildings that were filled with paper, with words on it. It was in the old Call century. Those things. What were those things? I can't what remember. It was from the old century. I don't even know yeah. anymore. Yeah. A linary or linary <laughs> or something like that. I can't remember either. We got Scott Stevenson here in his new studio. Actually, his new uh, house. Uh, you've moved. We had people who had been asking about the show. We had a little bit, a couple weeks off, I think. Uh, <laughs> we got a show out, and now we are back on track. And we have a bunch of listener questions today. Uh, Scott, I'm excited to jump into this thing, man. How about you? Cool questions, yeah, yeah. No, no training questions, I don't think. But well, You're maybe, right. maybe, uh, maybe we'll have one at the end that's training related. But yeah, but yeah, yeah. still cool questions. So yeah, feel free. By the way, guys, we might not be able to get to it, but if you want to post any questions up, feel free. We're going to start with a drug topic here, because um, the drugs always sell the podcast. And this is a good one too. He says, uh, "This is from uh, Mark Williams." What do you think about doing a video specific on Anadrol? We always hear over and over about how it doesn't aromatize, but uh, have you seen the estrogens on your labs while on it or pulsing it? Mine are out of control. I remember Derek from More Plates, More Dates saying that it somehow doesn't allow estrogen to clear from the body. Okay, so firstly, that's that's a possibility like that's that's a lot given what i what i kind of dug in a little bit on what derek said is is certainly a possibility so before we get to that sort of some this is a really cool sort of a very mysterious 
steroid in this in this regard. So it's five alpha reduced. So it's a DHT derivative. DHT is five alpha reduced testosterone. That means that it won't chemically aromatize. So you're not going to get estrogenic metabolites. So that's that's an interesting thing that apparently he's telling what I what I think is said in that question is that his estrogen reads high when he's using anadrol. Is that how you read that, Scott? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Okay, all right. So, um, what are our options here for like what might be going on there? Is it is it a progestogenic or a progestin like effect that's playing that's acting like an estrogen and then making people think, oh, that's why I'm holding water and having itchy nips or gyne- uh, the beginnings of what seems like it could become gynecomastia or what have you, estrogenic like things? Well. Um, all I could find, I dug into Bill Llewellyn's Anabolics book, and he has like a, a, an article from 1960 that was written in French that I, I didn't order because it would take a while to get it. Plus, I don't speak French, but I could figure that out. My mom speaks French, so she could read it to you. She can read it to you, like, this, read read it to you, like, like bedtime story. Bedtime stories. story, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but apparently what he says there, and I, it was cited several other places, probably having seen it, but I haven't read the research directly, so you know, I get, that's a huge caveat, suggests that there's no binding to the progesterone receptor. So it's not a progestin. Um, in a formal study looking at the po- potential for false positives with steroid testing, steroid being progesterone, estrogens, um, testosterone, there was no false positive created by oxymethylone, by, um, or sorry, oxy, yeah, oxymethylone by anadrol. So it doesn't seem in and of itself to create a false positive, meaning that what would happen with a false positive there is that the, the anadrol binds to the antibody, if that's, if that's the way they're testing this, or shows up itself as an estrogen. That doesn't seem to happen, at least from one study I found. But he seems to be f- finding that his estrogen levels are higher when he's getting his blood tested. So that would suggest that maybe somehow estrogens are going up. Hmm. Um, none of the none of the metabolites that could come from a five alpha reduced um, anadrol are going to be estrogenic either. So there's it's not like it's anadrol or one of its metabolites are estrogenic. It's not supposed to be, technically, it shouldn't be producing any estrogen-like metabolites. It's not producing in of itself a false positive. Maybe some of those metabolites could be producing a false positive. You can see those something where um, uh, certain chemicals like, um, for instance, DIM, um, like, which is a, a metabolite of indole-3-carbonyls found in cruciferous vegetables. People take that to um, alter estrogen metabolism and it has some anti-estrogenic effects. It also has some anti-androgenic effects. Um, so it's, it, it's got a very different molecular makeup chemically, but if you, you can, there's various ways this can be done. You can look at its structure. It's kind of like, imagine a key that's made, if you have something made out of iron, something made out of wood, those very, they're very different chemically. At least from that perspective, right? Yeah. Iron. Anyone could tell you iron is wood, but you could have two keys that are shaped the same. One could be a very hardened wood, and one could be iron. They could both unlock mm. or prevent a, lo- a key from a lock from being open because they've got the same shape. Yeah. 
So it's possible that some of those metabolites, I haven't seen someone do a structural analysis, possible those metabolites could be creating a false positive. But the other possibility is that somehow, um, somewhere in estrogen's metabolism or estrogen's excretion, um, some metabolism in terms of chemical modification or what's going on, it may be preventing estrogen from leaving the body and thus estrogens or estrogen one of the three estrogens or all or some of them is being elevated and that's what he's seeing in his blood tests. That's a possibility. If we think about what happens when the liver, for instance, is taking care of and detoxifying antigens or steroids, um, there's particular one of the P450 enzymes, CYP34A, I think it is, 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 seems to be a main one. There's another one too that's mainly involved with this. So what happens is you've got a chemical conversion of a steroid, any, either these ster- any of these steroids that go through that particular enzyme. And that's what creates actually the free radical stress. That's why we take antioxidants, herbs that do that, or things like alpha lipoic acid or acetyl L-cysteine or what have you to reduce liver stress. Most liver, liver supplements are, have an antioxidant action. So once you, once you convert an, a steroid that you've taken in, it's an oral one especially, to something else, then it can be bound, it can be conjugated to something so it can be lost from the body and more easily excreted out of the blood so the liver, so the, sorry, the kidneys can handle it. It could be that when oxymethylone, when anadrol is metabolized, that next step of conjugating or binding it, sulfating it, or glycosylating it or adding it to some other compound so that it can be easily taken out of the body, it may be preventing that from happening with estrogen. So the estrogens that normally would be removed from the body basically can't get removed in the way they normally are because oxymethylone and or its metabolites are jumping ahead in the line, so to speak, taking their place. So the estrogen metabolites increase huh. while the while the oxymethylone oxymethylone metabolites are being being reduced. So the liver isn't able to to handle both getting rid of the oxymethylone and its metabolites, as well as the normal load of estrogen that would need to get rid of. So estrogen levels build up. Interesting. You can't get rid of them. So that's that's a so Derek's proposition is a good one. It's possible. Yeah. Um, so, but here's the other kind of cool twist. All this. this here's here's the huge caveat. So this is why this is such a cool brain teaser, is that if we look at a lot of the orals, and especially oxymethylone, when you measure binding affinity for the antigen receptor, it doesn't really have any. It's a couple studies. It doesn't bind the antigen receptor, at least the classical genomic antigen receptor. But it's an antigen, and we know it turns on the antigen receptive genes um, so it turns on genes that are that are active that are targeted by the antigen receptor, but it doesn't bind the antigen receptor when you try to measure binding affinity. We've talked about this here too. Yeah. So, okay, we know it's an antigen. We know it has antigenic and anabolic effects. We know it turns on antigen receptor related genes, but the binding affinity, the the test that suggests it binds the antigen receptor, shows that it doesn't bind the antigen receptor. So what does that then tell us about the tests of it binding the estrogen receptor or the progesterone receptor with this study hmm. that, that Bill Llewellyn noted from 1960s in French that I haven't ordered in, 
and you know would have to get translated to Google. Um, so it may be that that information about not binding the estrogen receptor is just as valuable as the information that doesn't bind the antigen receptor because we know it's doing something androgenic. Maybe there's a membrane bound membrane membrane bound antigen receptor that it could be binding. Hmm. That's the possibility that sort of makes sense. Or we don't know about. Well, we know about that. There is one. That's been pretty clear, but just, I just haven't seen any binding affinity studies. Oh. Or any, actually, any studies to delineate like what things bind to that versus what binds to the classical. That's interesting we that, that we haven't there. done any studies on that. Because like you said, and I because I, I haven't forgotten that, the, the first time yeah. you had talked about this, you had said that they, what did they do? They sent the, they sent the, uh, um, some type of a dye in. Yeah, it's really cool. They um, so they they'll have they'll have cells that they've added a reporter gene to is what it's called. So it basically reports when antigen in this case when antigen receptive genes have been activated, and in in particular, this reporter gene is for the enzyme luciferase, which is made by fireflies, the ones that light up at night. Yes. So. This is what's so fucking cool about this. It's a really cool, really cool assay. So when the antigen receptor that now is linked to this luciferase gene gets activated, luciferase gets produced, and they put, put luciferins in there, which are the, the it's a substrate for luciferase, and you produce this, this um, you produce light, basically. That's what, that's what comes about. So you literally, they measure luminescence of the cells when they expose them to the antigen. So the cells light up like Christmas tree lights and the extent to it's like a Christmas tree light on a dimmer. The extent to which they light up reflects the extent to which the antigen receptive genes have been um, transactivated in this case with the term that they use. So so, you know, without it doesn't you know, the binding assays don't show binding there, but, you know, you're activating genes because this luciferase enzyme is demonstrating that's a very commonly used assay use that very they can they can send that into various different genes so or connect it with various different genes and then transfect the cells with those those luciferase um uh um genes related gene or luciferase combination with the regular genes so um what's that we don't what's that tell us about the the assays for instance the you know false positives with estrogen you know maybe those don't mean diddly squat because the antigen receptor binding um, assays don't really mean diddly squat in terms of activating the antigen receptor. And same thing could be true for the progesterone receptor. So it calls that information that, well, it doesn't bind the progesterone receptor, it doesn't bind the estrogen receptor into question because mm. it doesn't bind the antigen receptor, but it certainly activates the antigen receptor genes. Yeah. So it could be activating the estrogen receptor genes in the same mm. way that it's activating the antigen receptor genes. So it could be, there could be something that we're missing there is all I'm saying. That's and crazy that we know- still don't know. You know, it's a yeah. drug that's been around for a long time. It's used in medicine. It's crazy that we yeah. have these drugs that we use. But and I've seen other medications uh, just like off of steroids. There's a medication, Boostpar, that I had taken for anxiety at one mm. point. And they were like, mm-hmm. we really don't know how it works, but it works. And here's a prescription. <laughs> I tell you what, man, like if you can get they're really expensive, brand new. But if you can get a hold of just like an older physician's desk reference. Yeah. And it just talks about just pick a drug, <laughs> like just any drug, just open it randomly yeah. and then read the drug and, and look for the mechanism of action. Or you can do the same thing online, but the PDR is really. I have one. Um, it's real old, though. It's like, okay. yeah, it's like 20 years old, though. 
it'll still show you this as like unknown, you know, and then the list of side effects will be just gigantic. Yeah. And like, they really don't, don't know. Or, or like, especially if you look at the, the drugs that are used in pharmacology, it's like, eh, it, it binds all the catecholamine receptors. <laughs> it binds a serotonin receptor. It binds, you know, nor, norepinephrine, like it, blah, blah, blah. It binds the dopamine. It binds everything. It's just like, it just, just throwing it in there and it just binds all sorts of shit. And we get a clinical effect. Yeah, you know, and lots of side effects. So, yeah. yeah, that's the thing. There has to be in order to pay for these. You know, the science. It's kind of a you know side topic, but there has to be some clinical need. Mm. You know, and it's it's nice. Normally, the basic science would happen before you get to the clinical application. So it's like, okay, we know exactly what anadrol does and how it works and blah blah blah. But when it came into existence, some of these techniques weren't available. The molecular biology hadn't progressed far enough to be able to dig in and know those things but you knew you could modify um a, an antigen and then give it to a rat and look at the you know the relative rate growth of the seminal vesicles and the levator ani muscles and you know and the, the prostate and get a and hurt do a hirschberger's assay where they get the anabolic and antigenic ratio it's like okay this looks pretty good you know and the rats didn't all die you know we we took them up to an LD50 dose, and so they progressed through that without getting the deeper mechanistic action figured out, like this kind of like minutia. Yeah. So, you know, you see, um, I think some people see that they use can use a serum and they can prevent um, the estrogenic effects of of anadrol. Hmm. Um, you know, and that's that's always sort of mixed up. Um, or can be somewhat difficult to determine what exactly is going on there because you've got progestogenic effects and estrogenic effects acting simultaneously. For instance, if someone's like, Ooh, there go my nipples, I'm, I'm seeing water retention, you don't know what exactly is doing what. So if someone's using Tren and Anadrol, let's say, it's a nice combo. Yeah, yeah it, it makes is. for happy people. <laughs> yeah, it makes um, for strong people too. Oh, God, yeah. So you know, then you take a CIRM, um, and it might be the trend that's the issue, not the estrogen so much. But the, but the estrogen and the and the and the progestogenic actions, the trend are combining. So you're removing the synergy. You're not necessarily treating the main culprit, but you remove the synergy, and then you see a, a better, a lessening, lessening, lessening of the side effects. Hmm. So yeah, so if someone's using multiple things at one time, you may not know, um, yeah. you know, what the serum is actually doing, but if you just eliminate estrogenic actions, you may just be reducing the, you know, you maybe had good normal estrogen from testosterone aromatization, and now you wipe that out, and now the, the relative impact of the progestogenic actions of the trend or the nandrolone is reduced. You're like, oh, okay, I had an estrogen problem. It's like, yeah, yeah your problem wasn't estrogen so much. That was okay. It was the progestogenic issues that you're having yeah. or the prolactogenic issues, secondary to progesterone. So, um, so anyway, there's there's also a, there's um, methandriol or methandrostenediol is is also another five um, alpha reduced steroid that is seems to have estrogenic action. So there's it's not like there's and this is this is one I've heard of this before I've read this before this I think I found this I don't remember where I found it it's mentioned several places and I think Bill Llewellyn mentions it in his book but it's another example of a five alpha reduced. Um, so supposedly non-aromatizable 
androgen that seems to have estrogenic actions. So Anadrol's got a buddy, a partner in crime, so to speak, that also tends to have the same sort of um, side effects and sort of mystery. But I didn't dig in so much on that one because, you know, Anadrol was the main question here. Yeah. So, so yeah, but if estrogen is high, um, you know, this is, people will say, don't take a CIRM, you know, don't take an aromatase inhibitor because it's not, it's not coming from your Anadrol because it Anadrol is not estrogenic and it doesn't aromatize. But if the CIRM or an AI works for your side effects and they're that, well, first option, of course, is to take less Anadrol or don't take it at all. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right, right. So, but, you know, from a purely um, sort of a investigational standpoint, you know, one could try both of those things and see see what remedies the, the situation. And, of course, the context of the whole cycle makes a huge difference. Absolutely. You know, what else is being used in there that's aromatized or doesn't aromatize? So. That's cool. Um, yeah. It's it, right. really interesting. Yeah. So uh, just one last thought, too. Yeah. If, if an AI has no effect, um, then it could be, well, yeah, nix that. That's too complicated to kind of get into. But, um, yeah, it's, I was trying to tease out the possibility of whether it's just preventing the removal, the excretion of the estrogens. But if you prevent their production um, with an AI, that would, that would prevent, you, know, you wouldn't have an issue. But it just be, you know, there's, there's different ways to go about it. So, you know, CERN versus AI, there's positives and negatives there. That's a whole other topic, you know, for which, which of those is suitable. Sure. You know, for an estrogenic issue. So anyway, cool question, but that's my sort of best, like, wow, I don't know. But, <laughs> that's but your version of, I don't know. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I really don't know, but it's, but. it's interesting. All right. I know we had, we've got a few more. We've got one we're going to get to today from our good friend, Jeremy Jason. Um, I, I really, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. I think this is the one uh, about uh, thyroid. Uh, this is from Derek N. And he says, uh, I'm on TRT currently, and I've been running T3 at 50 micrograms every day for six weeks. I'm definitely leaning out but I feel like I am gaining muscle now too. My girlfriend has even commented to say I have gotten bigger. I see uh, I have been staying the same weight, but recomping. Does T3 help in growing muscle? I've always thought of it as strictly a catabolic compound, thanks. And I, I do wanna add too, number one, uh, that's the best feeling in the world when your significant other says, honey you look like you're getting bigger you're like yeah mm -hmm. i am it's a that's the best feeling in the world number one and and then number two um i have heard uh, you know all, all my life on the message boards and beyond that a, a a small dose of t3 can actually help with uh up uh, upregulating your ability to utilize nutrients so that, that, that kind of strikes that bell to me, um, but mm -hmm. I haven't really looked into that. So I'll be really curious to hear, you know, what you have to say here and if any of it happens to relate to that kind of bro lore that we've we've heard for years. Yeah, unfortunately, the bro lore is out there and uh, you don't have things like lab work, which he doesn't have here to know mm. where his T3 actually is. Okay. So, 
you know, 50 micrograms is a little bit above. It's like twice what you typically see sort of cited as this, the, the normal production um, of T3 that you'd have during the day. So, you know, like 25 micrograms is, or, or 25 is roughly replacement values. Um, so 50 is more than that. But if he's taking 50 and for instance, he gets an upregulate, he may have, he may have just restored himself to, um, a euthyroid status by taking 50. He may have been low. So, and I don't know what happened with diet. Don't know really anything that's going on there. Yeah. Um, I, he did, he does say is, I Very seem to be up. staying the same weight, but recomping. And he says, I feel like I am gaining muscle now too. So, the way it's said there, I don't know. Hopefully, maybe Dave's on here and he can respond. I don't. That would be cool. That would be the easiest way to to get dig in on this. But I see, or I seem to be staying the same weight, but recomping, comping, doesn't tell me like he's he's very meticulously measuring his body weight. Um, that his body weight. Now, if he's definitely saying the same weight and he's getting leaner and it's that clear, then he is recomping. But it, I'm not really saying that he is, and. So I'd want to see like, okay, what's happening in the gym? Like what are our, what are our measures of changing body composition? Okay. One, the kind of the roughest would be your body weight staying the same on the scale and you're obviously getting leaner. Better would be you're measuring skin folds to the places where you hold body fat or you're doing some other form of body composition like your DEXA or getting like a formal like underwater weighing or what have you. And that would be showing that. What are our measures of muscle mass? Well, the body comp is going to help with that, assuming, you know, organ mass isn't changing. So fat-free mass is a surrogate for muscle mass. Or you're getting, just getting stronger in the gym. So I'm guessing he would have said that if, his, if, he, if he was getting stronger in the gym. So that's the thing. Yeah. If, he, yeah, if he's taking T3 in and, you know, he's someone who was on the higher range maybe of T3, there's a multiple scenarios where – he could have been taking that 50 micrograms and just brought himself to, to a euthyroid status. So now he will have a better running metabolism because T3 basically turns on metabolic rate in a very generalized fashion in terms of fat, carbohydrate, protein metabolism. So if he's like, for instance, in a scenario where he's, he's, he's got enough calories in to produce muscle growth, and now he's spurring on. This is why people would, would take T3 and to, to, to get better gains. Now he's got a scenario where he's turning on protein synthesis. Let's say, just to keep it, the numbers kind of simple, he's increased his protein synthesis by 50%. Um, and his body fat isn't ultra low, so he's not like fighting against his set point. He's not like at 5%. Maybe he's at, you know, like a 15% average. Now he's in the scenario where the protein synthesis has been turned on or it's been more optimized, so to speak. And now with he's got enough calories in his diet, so he's not, he's, he's not holding himself down low. Now you can have that scenario, which is very probable with drugs, with new training, with novel stimuli of various kinds, where he could be taking from the body fat that he has and using those calories to support the protein synthesis that he's driving through this exogenous T3 intake and be losing body fat that way. Sure. That's what, that's what you see when people start training right off the bat, very, very, very common. Chris Bearcat, who we've had on the show before, 
He's got a nice paper out there um, that he was it was about a year ago. Like everyone was saying, this is bullshit. He went on some podcasts and talked about the possibility, which he's seen in the subjects that he's brought through the ringer in various studies at University of Tampa, and which you see in the in the literature, um, a recomping effect that happens when people train their butts off without any drugs that are involved. Yeah, you, this could just totally happen. So if he was if he was low let's say um and uh and he and he optimized that scenario of being able to tap into body fat and recomp that way makes sense he's now driving the the protein synthesis so the body's going to make use of energy that it's getting from somewhere another possibility is that if he was low and sluggish what does someone who's low thyroid want to do more than anything well one one would be eat but two sit around <laughs> Oh, do nothing right. if you take t3 and let's say now he's become a little bit hyperthyroid or a little bit and now his energy levels are higher uh-huh. hey let's go do something let's walk the dog like i think yeah. i'm gonna clean the office today yeah. so now his that was neat goes up and you know your neat goes up by let's say 300 calories a day so that's you know 2000 2100 calories a week and does that over six weeks do the math. He's getting about three or four pounds of fat there. Yeah, that he could have dropped. That's just from moving around more, plus the effect on his metabolic rate. That could happen. So that could be, you know, on the order of five, ten percent. So there's another couple hundred calories. So various ways this could happen, um, and yeah, definitely, uh, certainly a possibility. But you don't know how much, how much that 50 micrograms optimized him, changed him. What happened to his knee? What happened truly to his body composition? What's happening to his strength? What's happening to his muscle mass? He's he's just like got yeah. I think I'm gaining some muscle, and I I think I'm stayed my weight stayed the same. So it's kind of hard to to know. Yeah, yeah. But, since we don't have pictures, I mean, he yeah. there is the factor too that like as you get leaner, you look bigger. So there is that. That's, you know, that's the first thing that occurred to me actually when I read this. It's like yeah. Yeah. Right. The illusion yeah. of a middleweight that's in shape. You know, you can take a middleweight, you know, which which for anybody that's not a competitor, it's 176 pounds is that cutoff. Off season, he could be 190 walking around and look like a normal person. But then you get him down to, you know, 170 and it looks like he's three times as big in a tank top, you know. Dude, with all this moving, like my activity levels have been off the charts. Oh, yeah. And I, I'm I'm down I'm down to like 200 pounds now. You're kidding me. No, no, but Holy but shit. I'm but I'm really lean. Yeah, I bet you are. I'm pretty damn lean, and um, I mean I'm like like I'm probably four, five weeks out stage. Four You're kidding weeks out me. Stage. <laughs> I but love I'm, it. But I'm I'm super light. I look you know I look small, but I'm when I, you know it's funny. I, <laughs> just kind of side effect. So I I don't like. I don't really have mirrors here at the house. I don't like, I don't have any full length mirrors. I have, um, I don't have like any really. Okay. And, and oh, I have kind of some half at the house, but I'm not paying attention. I'm just kind of getting up. It's like, it was dark this morning when I got up and I'm just like, you know, getting ready to go. And so I was in and I've been training at home mostly where there's no mirrors. Yeah. And I went to the a gym like just a couple weeks ago and it probably been four weeks, you know, about a week and a half ago. And I've been three weeks of moving and I actually like went over to pick up the dumbbells, you know, and yeah. I look behind me. I'm like, oh, shit, <laughs> I'm fucking lean <laughs> because I hadn't been paying attention. So and but I'm not bigger. I didn't gain any muscle. 
Yeah. Without a doubt. And I've certainly not gotten any stronger because I'm just wrecking myself with this movie. <laughs> but I look, you know, re- substantially different. And I look bigger in a certain sense. The average person would say, oh, my God, you're huge. Yeah. What do you like, 250? You get those comments when you're lean. Like, you know, you're like, you're like 193. And they're like, what do you mean, like 240? I'm like, no, no. Yeah, people no don't right believe here. it. People never yeah. believe it. Right. Um, you know what? I, I lost my spot with uh, our question for Jerry, but oh, yep, I got it right here. Let me grab this one next. This is a friend of the show, Jeremy Jason, and uh, he commented this on the uh, the last episode. He says, uh, it is referring to the last podcast. He says, I'm scraping my skull off the ceiling on this one. And then he adds, uh, as a lifelong natty, middle age, hypogonata male, still making gains in the gym, um, even when my test is low. Uh, I feel like shit every day, but my strength and hypertrophy is still there. Oh, and there was a little bit more that I apparently missed in my screen cap. He says, Scott Stevenson, uh, you may have some insight as to why I don't get it. So there's a, a lot in this comment, actually. I think he may have been referring to when I talked, I think this was the last podcast, I talked about muscle growth in the compensatory hypertrophy model of, of rodents. Where they yes. take out the soleus and watch, the, and I kind of I think I kind of blew your mind a little bit when I you know went through like what happens with no insulin and no growth hormone and non pituitary yeah. hormones and with starvation, you still get the same growth compared to the control animal that hasn't been had any of those things done to it or done to them in those in that group. So that may be where he's coming from. It's like that's the like a really um, key piece of evidence if you just want to look at a very foundational level that. If you have a strong enough tensile mechanical tension stimulus that you can produce muscle growth without the the androgens, without the estrogens, without insulin, without growth hormone, with without thyroid, everything. When it's basically your endocrine system is 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 missing, muscle can still grow. So that could be part of this. I'm condensing a lot of things here too. Um, sure. So that's. You know, you got enough calories there too, and but you can just—it's not going to go. You're not going to go forever if you're not if you're not anything. But obviously, he's not doing that. And then strength can come from classically. It's understood to come from increases in muscle size or neurological or neural adaptations. So he's a—I mean—he's a competitor. He loves the gym. This is this is in his in his mindset. His psyche is geared up to beat the logbook, and I do believe he does fortitude training. He does fortitude, so, and he trains hard. Like he's not a stranger he, to going intense, and and he's a mm-hmm. strong guy too. Yeah, so he's a perfect. Yeah, he's because he's been training this hard for so long. That's how he's gotten so strong. So he's a perfect um, example of someone who can push past feeling like shit every day and still evoke a massive training stimulus such the muscle responds in terms of growth and he gets some muscle growth even though endocrine wise he's not not optimal so i don't know how long his training he's been training and what his training age is but um he's someone who who can do that and plus you know when you just want it like They'll make it happen. Like there's a lot of people who who get stronger as they diet into into shows. For sure. 
You know, that happens a lot of times with people on gear, but that can happen to some degree with, with others too, or they can hold their strength. So, um, yeah, it's possible that can happen. I mean, that's not going to happen forever. Obviously age, mother nature will eventually catch you one way or another. Yeah. Um, but, uh, those are my kind of my, my best guesses. Um, and you know, if it's just like a rep here and there, you know, that's still an increase in strength. It's not like he's, he's growing like someone on their first anadrol cycle, you know, right, or whatever, right. you know, he's not just like blasting up, like at a plate each, you know, each month to a primary lifts. I don't presume, but, uh, but yeah, he, that, and, that and can he, happen. And you, you, you definitely mentioned something just cause I, I know more about him that he had won his pro card in a natural organization last year. And mm-hmm. so now his goal is to be competitive as a pro, you know, guy in his forties who's been training probably all his life. Uh, he, he found this, like this newfound vigor, I'm sure, man, because it's like, I mean, imagine that, imagine that going your whole life, having a blast in the gym training. He's competed at like the local, the Michigan and, you know, a lot of the state level shows against open competitors. And of course, you know, he's going against super heavyweights that are all geared up. Uh, and, And now he's able to find a place where he's been very competitive and win and take it to the next level. Hell yeah, man. There'd be a Mm -hmm. lot of motivation in there to be strong in the gym, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Like it's a whole nother level. It's a new echelon. Yeah. Essentially. And, you know, he didn't say here, but it'd be interesting to see what, what's happening with his body weight. You know, if you keep driving your body weight up, you're going to keep, you're going to, some of that, like on average, the average person just in at least this kind of short term studies are not bodybuilders have been at it for years, but the average person you overfeed them, you might get a third of the weight as fat free mass. And some of the massive overfeeding studies like the, the Claude Bouchard twin studies that I've talked about before, they gave him a thousand extra calories a day, six out of seven days a week for like three months. Huh. It's not all fat in that case, about one third of it's fat free mass. Okay. Which is a lot of without, muscle to be growing, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, if he's if he's at an all time high body weight um, and he's training like that, it makes sense, you know, that he would have he would be at an all time high strength level and be gaining some muscle mass. Because, I mean, I've always I've always said if you can take that like one third, you know, one quarter, let's say so like like one out of three pounds or one out of four pounds is, is muscle mass. Yeah. And just, you know, double that where two out of three pounds or, or 50% of the weight is muscle. That's tremendous. Hell yeah, it is. You go up 20 pounds and get 10 pounds of muscle. That's awesome. I mean, you're not going to have the law of diminishing returns is not going to allow that for someone who's, you know, approaching their quote unquote genetic limit. Yeah. But, but still, if you can, if you can gain in that way, then that makes sense. And if he's, if he's got a combination of what you just said, Scott, which is super important, like that new, new, motivation that that comes now is with being a a, a pro and taking it to a higher level and he's putting on a little bit of muscle mass because his because he's pushing his weight up to where he wants to be he wants to be better he wants to come on stage you know if he's going to try to put three or four pounds of muscle on he's going to need to he's probably going to need to go up you know 10 pounds at least over previous off-season high body weight Hmm. i would guess yeah you know just to keep that so if that's that's if he gets five and five, five pounds of fat-free mass and five pounds of fat, and then he loses two or three on the way down. That gives him, you know, three or four 
two or three, something like that, on on the stage, which is pretty substantial for someone. He's pretty tall, but substantial for someone who's really in good condition. That's noticeable. Yeah. So, so yeah, his his drive, motivation is the kind of the, neuro, the underpinnings of a neurological effect, and then if he's got more body weight um, than ever before, that's going to mean more muscle mass than ever before. So you combine those two things creeping upwards. Um, plus there's just like the whole psyche of it. He's using a logbook. He's doing fortitude training is, it works pretty good for strength. And that may be part of it too, just tooting my own horn that he's never been on a progressive overload type of program mm -hmm. like that. You know, he's just been like, you know, bro split, go in and pump it out. You know, don't really log things. Don't focus on progressive overload. So now he's doing that for the first time. Um, and he's gotten really good at it. And he's just eking out a little bit, a few extra reps. So, you know, he's gotten, let's say he's gotten 20% stronger in the last year and a half or two years on fortitude training. Mm -hmm. So that's 10% each year. That's 1% each month. So that's, you know, that's going from, you know, taking a, a 200 pound or let's say a 400 pound lift and, you know, and getting 10 pounds on it, something like that. You know, just a little bit each month, like every other workout, he's going up a little bit. So it's just a smidge. Yeah. So that's it kind of mathematically it can work out, you know, at least in the last couple of years that this is possible. I could see so, that. Yeah. All right. I had one. Um, and actually, too, I just wanted to say shout out to everybody who is uh, hanging out with us here. Andrew Nolan had asked uh, what that picture is. He, said, he, he noticed we're both wearing hoodies today. Got Robbie Robinson. I'm so jealous, by the way. I want that shirt. That's the coolest thing. Uh, yeah, he said, what are the pictures cool. on your hoodies? I've got a, a raise, raise the Bar, RTB gym, uh, local gym here. Really good, really good people over there. And the owner actually watches our stuff, too. So cool. shout out to him. And, and shout out to Matt. He says, uh, greetings from me and American Christmas Cabbage en route to the Virgin Islands. So... Shout out to Matt. He's driving right now. Hopefully he's not oh. looking at the screen. Uh, he's just listening to us. That was a cat in his avatar picture. Yes. Yes. I yep. thought it was I'll bring a it back cabbage. Up there. No, he's got, but he has the American Christmas cabbage and he, he, has, he got an, a, a Christmas cabbage license plate. Oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah. It says cabbage head, basically, like phonetically spelled. So. I love it. <laughs> yeah. The tr a true, like, registered vanity plate. Yes, exactly. Real plate. Oh crap! Yeah, it's a it's a real vanity plate. It's on his car. Dave said Man. it's Christmas cabbage's car now. By the way, the laws work in the United Kingdom, that's, but uh, I think that's I think that's correct. Thank you for tuning in to another podcast here at Think Big Bodybuilding Media. If we've provided value to you today, then please consider contributing to our show. You can help support the show through Patreon. Every $5 helps to pay for the software and the hardware and everything else that goes into making a podcast. You can also contribute by using our code at True Nutrition. True Nutrition has been our title sponsor for several years now. I'm super grateful for them. And I've believed in True Nutrition supplements long before they sponsored our programming. You could use our code THINK for health supplements and performance supplements. Feel free to hit me up if you have any questions. And if you're in Canada, check out supplementsource.ca. They have free shipping over $99, huge discounts on overstock, short dated, and label changed products. Plus, they have all your normal supplements too. Thank you guys for listening to the commercial. I hope you're having a great day and that your bodybuilding is going well. Let's get back to the show. Um, all right, so get some dogs, Victoria's dogs barking upstairs. I'm gonna.
do something like that. Um, all right. So this is another question. This is from YouTube. Uh, Physique 11, he says, uh, so this relates to the last two episodes. We've been talking all about protein and how much protein your body can use um, and overfeeding. He says, uh, so how much protein per pound of body weight on gear blast is enough now? I think I missed that part uh, if he had even said it. I don't, I don't see without trying to recap everything we covered, I don't see any reason to, for in just gen- generally to recommend more than what you see in the research with people that aren't on gear. Um, hmm. You just have to have enough calories in there. Okay. You know, and the re- the reason being, well, I should probably recap this is if, if you break it down in terms of what's happening with the positive protein balance, you give yourself it's a seven grams a day, positive protein balance, seven grams being laid down as new muscle tissue gives you about an ounce a day. Add that up, it gives you 22, 25 pounds in a year. That's a that's the rate of muscle mass you're getting. So that's that's a small. It's for someone who takes in 200 200 pounder takes in 200 grams of protein. That's just shifting their protein balance to a positive 3.5 percent. So seven grams out of 200. It's the effect is just better utilization of the protein that's there. Um. There are lots of guys, you know, who who um, find they do just fine even with less protein. Hmm. Um, you go too high. Someone commented, I don't know if, where I picked this, because I got some comments that you, maybe it was, no, I don't want to say someone who wasn't, but people go so high in their protein um, that inhibits their appetite, and then they don't eat enough food. Oh, I think I know who it was. Um, that can be a problem. So it's like, oh, I need to have more protein. So they start doing 400 grams of protein and they get digestive issues and lots of gas and they don't need enough calories. The thing that people need to, to is, the, is the calories to support the growth process. Yeah. Enough protein, a gram per pound, is a place to start. Um, and like we said, you can, the studies show you can take in more and it's not going to it's not going to really impact your body composition, at least in, with natural individuals. So maybe, maybe, I haven't seen this in study directly, you could take in more, but if you, you get to a point of diminishing returns and then negative impact. So if you go to a gram and a half per pound, certainly you're going to be fine, yeah. I would think. But if in doing so, now you're taking in more protein than allows you to get enough calories to grow from, yeah. then you're running it and then you can run into issues. So you're not going to probably like impair absorption. Like protein is mass. It's almost all absorbed. It's like 95% percentage of, of almost all proteins are absorbed. Um, there's some issues like with raw egg white, for instance, hmm. that it runs into people. That's why some people have some awful GI issues with raw egg white. But yeah. um, for the most part, protein's fully absorbed, but it can, but what, but having going from, you know, 3% not absorbed that makes its way down to your GI to 6% because you went from 200 to 300 or just mm. from those extra few grams that get down there, mm-hmm. you know, that's where your where you're, uh, back, the bacteria in your gut say, ah, how about some gas, baby? How about some, <laughs> some stinkiness? Yeah. So that, and then you, and then you get bloated and then you don't eat enough. And that's the thing. You know, when you start off as a newbie and like or your first cycle, or whatever, it's just all magic, right? You yeah. don't just 
don't have to do anything. You just grow because everything's new and different. But when guys are trying to put on new size that have been at it for a while, and let's say they're enhanced, like the question asks, um, the calories are what's going to make it happen. And hmm. if your protein is so high that you can't get the calories in, hmm. um, because it's a it's a meal by meal battle to get the food in. Oh yeah, it is. Right, you know this. Anyone who's out there who's really pushed it, it's like so you got to get the calories in, yeah. and that just the subtle shifts that come in protein balance um, is enough. Like it, it's not like it's not like you need quantitatively like a hundred extra grams of protein to produce substantial muscle growth. Seven extra grams a day gives you that's a really good rate of muscle growth. You know, that's a couple pounds a month. That's that's substantial. You'll see that. So it's not about the amount of protein. It's about having the, the, um, the fuel, the energy to support the growth process. So, you know, a gram, a gram and a half, you know, just not so high that you're not able to get the food in. If someone's at a gram and a half, I don't like, um, you know, I can't see any, any reason. The only, only scenario would be, of course, everyone's different, is if someone just i mean i'm thinking of an enhanced person but they just put on body fat really really easily because the protein's not gonna translate into body fat as easily that's it yeah, yeah. And, and they have a really ex so like for instance someone comes they're done with the show it's just been another and they have a just they're gifted in terms of appetite and they have a past history of putting on the pounds too fast yeah so they go from you know 210 pounds on stage to 250 in like, you know, six weeks, right. like that. Like that's a lot of water, probably a lot of fat. Someone like that um, might be better off. And here's kind of why is that they do, if they did lose some muscle, they are in a state where they can, where they can grow really get the calories in easily having the protein in there to impair and reduce their appetite will prevent them from eating excessively beyond which is necessary to sort of maximize or optimize any growth of muscle that's going to happen post-show in the quote-unquote rebound. Yeah. So, again, it's just, in that case, the more protein isn't because now you're going to grow at, you know, five pounds of muscle a day. You know, you need all this extra protein. It's that it will slow down how much food this, this individual in this circumstance takes in mm -hmm. and make sure they have plenty of protein around. You know, they may have lost, let's say they lost, they had the diet down really hard because that's, they just tend to be, um, have more body fat. Yeah. And so they had to really push it and bring things really low. So they lost some muscle mass in the process. They may be able to grow at a really substantial rate beyond that, you know, seven grams a day, two pounds a month. They may be able to put on, you know, some of this is refilling your glycogen. It's hard to sort of measure these things in that really depleted state, but they may need, they may need an extra 25 grams of protein a day. Okay. That would be that would be like three times. That would be like, God, that would be like eight pounds in a month or something like that, hmm. which is just ridiculous. Yeah. You know, you someone loses eight pounds during a during a diet, like in a month, you see that, like, oh shit, that's a huge visual change. Yeah. yeah. So going the other way, that's only like, and I'm just, I'm not doing the math here exactly, but twenty five grams. So this extra protein in that case wouldn't be because you need it to support this massive rebound of of muscle regrowth or restoration of lost muscle mass. The extra protein would be to keep that person from eating so fast that the calories outpace 
the rate of muscle growth that is actually possible, even though they lost some during their diet. So they're they're getting they're going back to to previous levels of muscle mass, which you know muscle memory and those mechanisms would be helpful for. But they have to be careful because you can get out of shape lickety split. You know, someone especially with a high appetite like that and who pushed themselves and you know kind of screwed up their um, their brain chemistry, appetite wise. So the protein can be helpful there, hmm. um, and you know, keep, keep eat, eat that first during the diet. Um, I mean, there's idea. It's another topic, but there's a whole whole possibility of, of protein leveraging. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a that's a kind of a, a topic, a concept in the body weight regulation literature, whereby the amount of calories that our our body is sensing is somehow leveraged by or related to getting enough protein in the need protein meat protein needs so you can imagine if someone else like ate like a really protein insufficient diet um like just a, like a this is something that i've this is just kind of anecdotal so hopefully no one comes at me with this but i've known vegetarians and people who were vegetarians who just like they didn't pay attention like getting all the essential amino acids and they weren't really meticulous about that and they just found they just were really high in appetite and their body fat levels were higher hmm. why they're why they're a vegetarian and some of that you know they're if they're eating depends on what they're eating um but that would support this idea of protein leveraging where their body's saying we need more calories because we're not getting the protein we need hmm. whereas the flip side of that would be someone who says well i'm going to make sure there's plenty of protein because we know that protein does indeed, and glucagon impairs, reduces um, glucagon's increase when you increase protein intake. Um, it reduces appetite, so that fits with this protein leveraging idea that once you once you measure if you're covering or even exceeding your sort of protein needs, not that you want to go too high, then you can run into problems. Um, then you're going to have less of a drive to eat more calories, which is which is a a nice thing lifestyle wise and psychologically to have after a show so you know you don't see your show condition just vanish instantaneously right and you can meter your calories in at a rate that makes sense so you're not going from four percent to fifteen percent you know in a matter of six weeks um last thought on that is that Coming out of that hole, I think, is important for some people. Getting from 4% to like a more comfortable 6 7% maybe, somewhat quickly, I think, is okay. Hmm. Some people say just go after it. They just like launch into it, and that could be a mistake for some hmm. who tend to hold more body fat. But that's kind of always a tough spot is getting out of that like no man's land where you're like, I just want to – my food focus is so high, I just want to eat all day long. Yeah. So not saying that someone should go – you know, I'm going to add an extra, you know, 22 calories a day, you know, each day, you know, or for a 20, 25 calories a week in week one and, and do a reverse diet that just leaves someone absolutely suffering and staying in contest condition, you know, like for forever. Yeah. That's, you know, that's that sets up all sorts of eating difficulties, eating just disordered types of eating patterns and and just like you don't enjoy life. You got to get out of that kind of that hole where you're like. God, I'm just, I just like, I feel like I'm a food black hole. I just want to just eat and eat and eat. You know, getting out of that somewhat, somewhat quickly makes sense. But after that, metering your food intake with using protein as a, as a leveraging tool, 
sort of so to speak i think makes sense so but it's not a matter of quantity of protein versus muscle mass it's just small amounts that lead to tremendous gains in muscle mass and it's so it's the calories that have to be there to support that so that's the bottom line answer to the question i think that makes sense. And and I'll add that, you know, we, we never speak in absolutes on any of these programs. So if you start, like Scott said, if you start with one gram per pound uh, of lean mass and then you want to experiment with it, there's nothing wrong with going up, you know, and seeing, hey, just, you know, mm. maybe what looks what works on paper is going to be a little bit different in your own life and you know maybe the formula works better for you personally if you're using a little bit more or maybe a little bit less but i think the only way to really know is to start and then adjust and 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 watch right you know what i mean watch and and see how you respond so i'll just add that in the um I've sent a couple of people the studies that I referred to, Jose Antonio studies, which are the best ones. And they've used, I've seen like, I think 3.4, maybe 3.6 and 4.0 grams of protein per day per kilogram. Wow. Okay. So it's like a 220 pound, 100 kilogram bodybuilder taking in 400 grams of protein okay. a day. Yeah. And you're not, those are the types of overfeeding just protein. That, that don't give you any excess, doesn't change the body composition changes in resistance training individuals. So that's that that four grams of protein per kilogram is 400 grams for a 220 pound guy. So that's above one and a half grams per pound. 3.6 is somewhere around like one and a half grams per pound. Um, and so they've done that. So th- those are, okay, those seem to be okay. Um, for people with healthy kidneys, of course, they don't have any problem with urea. And the other thing that's, of course, worth noting is that protein needs to go up when you're in a caloric deficit. Yeah. So you can retain muscle better with higher protein intake. So above three, that's where the, you know, three grams per kilogram of going above that magical value of two or 2.2 grams per kilogram as a top end seems to make sense. Um, but that's with people who are in a, you know, pretty crazy caloric deficit. So, um, that's helpful for the protein, the satiating effects and, and holding on to muscle mass. So countering the breakdown. All right. Hey, listen, I got one from uh, Neven uh, yeah. uh, on the, the live feed here. I figure I'll toss this up real quick. Could be you know, a good topic to, to briefly touch on. He says, love the show. Keep it up, guys. Uh, what are the top two or three things someone can do in the hours before training to prevent muscle tears during training? Um, hydration and making sure the electrolytes are in balance. So, uh, you know, dehydrated, you don't want to have a spasm for instance, like that's, you're literally, if you've got, if you're someone who maybe wakes up in the morning and actually that's probably the best scenario is someone who has, um, doesn't have hours before training to be ready to train. They just got to go for it. You're yeah. going to have less body water. Potentially, you're relatively dehydrated in the morning. So hydration, electrolytes. So someone could take in, um, you know, just a, like a mineral supplement and water if they're trying to train fasted. Yeah. Or this is why the Gatorade thing would be good. Um, and the other thing is, uh, it'd be interesting to know, Nevin, why, maybe he's had this happen before. Um, but uh, why, you know, what his scenario is. But also being cognizant so being awake 
um, hmm. and not rushed. So these kind of all fit together. So being a, like preparing yourself mentally for the training um, and going in there, you know, making sure and that means making sure you're warmed up. So don't go in. People have get muscle tears. Like a lot of people get pec tears, like on warm up um, uh, sets yeah. for like the flat bench, especially. I think I think Kevin Laroni tore his pec uh, doing like a, a relative for him light dumbbell press. No kidding. Yeah, it was just like like nothing. Yeah, pec is a so. big one. I feel like pec is a big one. Bicep is a big one. Mm-hmm. hamstrings people i see p- people popping hamstrings but nothing like like the pec and the bicep seem to be like the two that people really tear a lot yeah i've got um there's a guy on my I mean, he's probably still there but a guy posted on my forum for for what it's worth if people buy the fortitude training book i get fortitude training questions all the time they get free access to a discussion forum where i answer questions i go there and check it pretty much every day yeah. Um, and it's, it's like free Q&A with me. People just don't want to go there and spend the time doing it. But if you buy the book. Anyway, he um, he posted like some progress pics and just made phenomenal progress. He was really badass. Nice. But the one thing that I remember that was crazy is that he tore his sartorius. And really? he blamed it. Yeah, he blamed it on himself. Okay. Um, because... Uh, he was getting cramps and spasms there. And I get those too. Like when I, whenever I get a spasm, whenever I really whack my leg, yeah, I get, I get the gracilis and the sartorius huh. tend to spasm up. Um, and yeah, and it's a kind of a, a funky thing. Like uh, it happened actually recently. <laughs> I was so happy. Like, so cleaning out the house and I, you know, I, I cleaned away like a bunch of my supplements <laughs> and I just happened to, cause I was thinking, I left some sea salt yeah. next to my bed, and I had a day where I just went off on the on all the uh, the um, packing and the loading. It was like a bunch of heavy shit, yeah. And I wasn't hydrated, and I and I, I started getting cramps in the middle of the night. Okay, and I'm like I'm like, fuck my taurines in a different city. I don't have <laughs> I don't like got nothing, but I had the sea salt right there. Yeah, and I took it, and that fixed it. So sea salt's a great, or just salt, but sodium helps. Yeah. But um, anyway, he he was. He recognized that he'd get spasms there, and he, I think he trained in the morning. I can't remember the details, but he was getting spasms in the muscle from from training or not being hydrated. Just one of his tendencies. He could have been taking clan. I don't know what the deal was. Right. But um, not saying anything. He was or wasn't. I just don't recall. But in that muscle that was spasming, um, probably because of an electrolyte imbalance that affects the nerves that that um the motor nerves that activate the muscles. Um, that was what he was pretty sure brought it. The fact that he tore his sartorius, hmm. um, he maybe even tore it when it was spasming, like it was like cramped up so bad that it just tore. I can't remember now. Dang. Yeah. So Dang. I've been talking a lot about hydration lately with the mm-hmm. the clients I work with. A couple circumstances. Number one, um, I've had a lot of people all around the country that have been getting sick, like nothing terrible, but enough where they can't train for a few days. And, um, you know, I think with that, we our water requirements go up, but there's like a point you just you can't hold the hydration well enough. And I think it can take a little bit of time to bounce back from. Um, so you know, we've been talking about, you know, what Victoria suggests is um, Ultima. It's uh, an electrolyte uh, product. 
And mm -hmm. um, I never used to believe in buying electrolytes. I used to just say like, yeah, you just put sea salt on it. That's plenty. But she's talked about that this the balance in this product is really well, mm -hmm. really well made. And so I've been suggesting that and, and I'm suggesting it because I've used it myself. And I wish I would have known about these electro about balancing your electrolytes and the importance of hydration for training um, years ago. Because the other thing, the other reason it, that I've been talking about it with my clients is that it's getting warmer out now. We're getting into the spring months and, mm -hmm. you know, we're, people are sweating more. And we have to remember, because I'll ask people, like, how much water do you drink? And uh, they'll say, I use this much every day. You know, I make sure I get that every day. But our hydration needs can change from day to day. And and I think that our hydration needs can change from season to season, too. You know, if you're sweating more, mm -hmm. I, we just need to, you know, make note of that. And I remember years and years ago working for the pop company and it being a sad. I, I trained legs on Saturdays because we didn't do deliveries then. So I just had to go to like a bunch of different Walmarts and build displays, move crap around. But it wasn't uh -huh. as heavy as my normal days. So leg days were Saturdays. And um, I still had some days where I would spend hours in these warehouses, sweating and moving stuff, and then come into the gym and just feel spent before I even started training. And now I've yeah. come to understand how much of that was hydration related. And if I would have beefed up more on hydration, if I would have uh. maybe put more salt in my food, in my meals, like my pre-training meal especially, if I would have used an electrolyte that would help me to hold the fluid in the muscle, you know, <laughs> then I may have done better. And, and now I do see, I, I would say that the difference for me of making sure that I have all my electrolytes in hydration is I, it's not going to be like a performance enhancer as in I'm going to do better than I, than I could, you know, at my best. It's not like taking Anadrol, but what it does is it ensures that I'm going to, yeah, or ephedrine. Yeah, sure. Um, or a pre-workout or anything else, but it's going to ensure that I have like consistent endurance. You know, I'm not going to uh, you like to but use the word performance bark. enhancer. So, yeah, that is a performance enhancer. Well, it, it's almost like to me, it's not enhancing it. It's just ensuring that I'm going to be OK. Like I'm not going to bonk right. later, you know, because yeah. you, you have people who come to you. I you know, I'm sure you get this all the time and they're like, I'm doing pretty good. But, man, I had a bad workout the other day. I don't know why. Mm -hmm. And then they just shrug it off and keep going. But usually if we get talking about how their day went there's a chance their hydration was different that day, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but not, but not bonking means you did better than, than yeah. you bonked. So that's true. A, uh, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. The thing too, though, uh, and there's lots of, there's a really deep dehydration thermoregulation literature in the mm -hmm. exercise physiology literature. It's mainly endurance um, exercise, but um, thirst does not, really reflect very well the state of hydration um you end up short basically so you look at like like any of the uh, recommendations about hydration and for exercise in the heat there's just tons of papers and position stands that have been put out and they they always suggest looking at body weight at least and and not and drinking beyond your thirst because um, you'll have to in order to restore body weight you may even want to restore body weight above where it was when you started. Hmm. Just kind of shoot for that. But, you know, someone exercises in the heat and they're down five pounds, their thirst might take them up to, you know, two, three pounds shy of where they started. 
but they um, Hirsch almost never gets you. Some some of that has to do with the relative. It depends on the relative loss of electrolytes. So your body is sensing electrolyte concentrations in the blood to determine thirst. So if you sweat and sweat and sweat and sweat and sweat, you you lose some electrolytes in that process. Yeah. So now your to- body's total electrolyte content has gone down if you haven't replaced it with Ultima is the name of the product or Gatorade or something. Um, and so now you've got uh, lo- lesser electrolytes. Your body is going to have lesser water in order to have the same concentration of those electrolytes. So it's going to think, okay, I got the concentration back to where I was, so I'm not thirsty. Yeah. Well, that means because you lost electrolytes, you've got less electrolytes, you've got less water at the same concentration. And so you're dehydrated, but you don't feel like it and you don't drink accordingly. So that's kind of where like, you just can't use your thirst. So you have to make a habit of it. I think what you said was really, really dead on. If someone wakes up in the morning, for instance, or before they train and they hydrate and maybe use a product like that or um, you know, I, as a general generic situ, uh, situ, uh, suggestion, I've thrown out get a uh, just a multi mineral, yeah. you know, and, and, and salt on your food is good too, but especially if you're working in the heat or what have you. But a multi mineral, and then your body will kind of sort it out. You know what it needs. Your kidneys will take care of what it needs, um, and then you then at least you know you, you're replete with everything that might be involved because magnesium can play a role here, calcium, potassium, of course, sodium. Um, but, uh, yeah, using thirst is not, not the best way to go about looking, especially if you end up in a dehydrated situation, because let's say you, like a lot of people, they'll go to work and they don't want to have to get up to go pee all the time. So they just don't drink. Yes. I've, I mean, I've had people say that, be like, ah, I just yeah. haven't been drinking as much. Cause I don't, it's, it's a problem. It's yeah. a pain in the butt, you know, yeah. or, or guys that work like over the road and stuff like that. People that are driving and yeah. Yeah, so they're chronically dehydrated, and you get used to that. You get up, a, you set up a circadian rhythm of not drinking much, and then you're sort of you're in this chronically dehydrated state, especially if like you're going to train. Yeah, and then that's probably going to increase your likelihood of of having a muscle tear or an injury. So, Just a little add-on here, and I don't yeah. know what this word is. Uh, does Doctor Scott ever considered as mas- osmolality? Uh, osmolality osmolality when considering uh, electrolyte products? What's that mean? Uh, relative concentration of the electrolytes in the drink. So, okay. yeah, there's, there's a deep literature on this, too. It's um, it's a little like my favorite little factoid. Um, do you know that Powerade has 33% more carbs than Gatorade? What? <laughs> That's what they used to always advertise. Powerade has 33% more carbs than Gatorade. That's because Powerade was an 8% carbohydrate solution and okay. Gatorade was a 6% carbohydrate solution. So okay. 8% is 33% more than 6%. <laughs> okay. So that means 6 versus 8 grams in every 100 milliliters. Yeah. Um, and the reason for those numbers is that, at least in terms of carbohydrate concentration, um, you have to look at the concentrations of everything that's in there. Sodium will make a difference, of course. But... During, during endurance exercise, when you're trying to replenish fluids, um, one of the issues there is that your body is diverting blood flow away from the organs. Blood flow is going to the periphery yeah. um, so that you can lose heat mainly through sweating. So you want to bring the hot blood to the skin, skin blood flow goes up, and then you want the heat to be lost in that evaporative process. 
um, where the where the water goes through a state change from um, a fluid to a vapor, and that's where you have a lot of heat loss. So you have to the, if the sweat just drips off you, you lost a little bit of hot sweat, but it's much better if it actually evaporates off of you. Mm, yeah. So anyway, um, during that situation, the body's not uh, you don't get you don't get optimal fluid, you don't get maximal fluid intake. Um, because you just don't have the blood flow in the in the GI and the motility and everything to make that happen. So the question was, we want to provide fluid and we want to provide um, carbohydrate and somehow optimize those two things because carbohydrate can even have some ergogenic effects during um, endurance exercise. Um, yeah, hell, even just mouth washing. There's mouth there's there's mouth rinsing studies where they just put something sweet in the mouth and that'll have an erg- ergogenic effect. Yeah. So the body seems to sensor some food come in. Anyway, the six to eight percent is seems to optimize that. So, okay. yeah. So, uh, so electrolytes will also matter. You don't want to take in like a bunch of sodium. Some sodium helps with taste. Actually, tastes better. Sure. So that will help drinking. If you have something like, I don't know. Imagine like you like I'm going to have a greens formula while I train, and the thing just tastes like ass. Yeah. You're not going to want to drink it. You know, if it doesn't, especially if it doesn't mix very well. Um, so yeah, that's that's important. If it's the concentrations of sodium are too high, um, that will impair that will impair the absorption, huh. of course. And uh, you can also you know run into like with the with the glucose or the carbohydrate sources that are in there. If you go too low, then you don't optimize the the carbohydrate uptake. Yeah. So normally it's about a gram um, per minute. So 60 grams in an hour if you use a glucose source. If you use multiple carbohydrate sources, you can go up to like 70 or 80. Holy shit, um, I didn't know that. You can bring fructose in. Yeah. Okay. There's a, there's a Belgian researcher who's done um, this research. Yeah, there's di- different uh, transporter proteins in the gut, so you can get to like 80. That's during that's the lactate threshold level maximal endurance exercise performance. Okay. Um, I haven't seen that. I haven't looked recently, but I haven't seen that with regards to resistance exercise. Okay. But you get going, you're like cranking it and you're like training legs at a fast pace, high volume type of thing. Yeah. You're, you're going to run into those same absorption issues as far as carbs go. Um, you're probably, unless you're, unless you're going to a bonking situation yeah. where you're literally running out of carbohydrate, out of glycogen in the muscle, um, it doesn't matter so much. That would be... But that could happen. You like train legs and do like a 30 setter or something like that, and you're already low on glycogen. Um, the nice thing about weight training, just like with interval training, is that if you're taking in carbohydrates during the workout using an intra workout, let's say it's got carbs in it, you can replenish the glycogen you use during your set between the sets. Yeah. So they've done they've done studies where they where they measure um, with and without a carbohydrate source coming in, and they'll take biopsies just before each of the intervals no kidding or or periodically through a set of intervals and what happens and they do them they can do the before and after we can measure it with uh, nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy or those sorts of things but um you'll see glycogen goes down when you do the set of course um and then you'll get some replenishment just because the lactate that's released can be taken back up and you can feed that back through so you get some replenishment from lactate and and the other metabolites that are involved there but with you if you have carbs in there you can take those you take those glucose in and restore glycogen during the resting period so instead of your glycogen going down and maybe coming up and going down maybe coming up and going down 
So I'm trying to get myself on the, it goes down and then it'll go up a little bit more and it'll still go down. You'll still use glycogen at the same rate during the set. Yeah. It's not like you're slowing the rate of glycogen use. The metabolic demand is so high that it doesn't have an impact. But during the rest intervals, you can restore glycogen more quickly. So ah. take someone who's like four weeks out, they've been low carbing, and they're finding, man, I get a couple of good sets in, and then psh, I get no pump. And you do that set where you're like, your mind muscle connection kind of sucks because you have a shitty pump. Yeah. And you just like, you're thinking, okay, I got about 12 reps here, and you get to like the ninth rep, and it's like, what happened? Like you turned <laughs> off the switch, man. Right. It's it's you, you, it's probably my guess is that that is associated with lack of fuel. You don't have enough glycogen to support the energy demand of doing the next rep. Hmm. But if you take in just a small amount of glucose, like I said, you know, if if you're working really hard, it might be 60, 90 grams throughout a per hour, something like that. That's going to get you the most that you can actually get into the bloodstream. Hmm. that could help prevent that bonk. So instead of doing your sets going from, let's say, 12, 11, and then 8, you know, and then 7, you might do 12, 11, 10, and 9. Yeah. So you get a, you get more effective reps potentially that way. And Greg Half has done some studies without even in the low-carbohydrate scenario showing that carbohydrate intake during resistance exercise increases performance. Hmm. So... So that's kind of a that's a good thing. The harder you can train, the more you can maintain that stimulus or create the new stimulus for new muscle growth. But you know what? Down, you know, I'm going to give him one more answer, and and I'm just like going to go back to basics, and that's eat food. He said, "What's something oh, you yeah. can do? Uh, yeah, you know, in the hours before training, that's going to help you eat food. Make sure that you eat food." You know, that's going to make like, I, yeah. you know, we're going deep here, but realistically, man, that's a real basic one. And and then see how that yeah. food affects you, because different foods are going to affect different people. And then different carbs are going to affect different people differently. You know, each person's mm-hmm. going to have a different response to sweet potatoes or or a starchy like jasmine, white rice or, you know, something like that. Yeah. And then in play with that, be a scientist and see what works best for you. I had a big phase of. um ground beef and sweet potatoes. If I ate that mm. meal, I was guaranteed to get some incredible pumps and be strong as hell in the gym versus, yeah. you know, like a chicken and rice, something like that. So, you know, figure out what works for you. Yeah. That's, um, that's kind of having some fat in that pre-workout meal is going to yeah. slow the absorption. It's going to keep you, give you a nice steady blood glucose level. That's slightly elevated during your workout. So especially with sweet potato, those two, that's a good combination for, that's what, that's why John Meadows used to have people have almond butter with a pre-workout meal mm. or something to take beforehand. So, so keep the, I, I, I do that by having people use inter-workouts that they meter throughout the entire course of the workout. Oh yeah. But if you're not doing it, yeah. So you just keep the blood glucose levels higher by continuing to drink your intra and finishing it off just before you finish your workout. Yeah. But you can have a fattier meal like that. You know, that gets in, that gets settled, but you still, you're going to have, like, there's a, there's a study with, I think, about an 800-calorie pizza meal. Whew. So, carbs, protein, and fat, and it took, it was like 8 to 10 hours before the person was finally post-absorptive, meaning that wow. they had absorbed everything. So, it, it, the food keeps on coming in, yeah, yeah. Um, slowly, especially with a mixed macronutrient type meal like like what you're talking about protein fats and carbs you had the nice probably that was about a a zone diet dr barry sears zone diet or isocaloric type of thing with with that food i'm guessing it was about one third of the calories from fat protein and carbs each i'm guessing you know maybe yeah. 
So. All right. Well, it was a good show, guys. We we don't have any more time. There's a couple more questions, but uh, we got to wrap this thing up. Um, of course, go to byobbcoach.com. You can get Scott's book over there, Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach, and check out Fortitude Training, too, as we mentioned, fortitudetraining.net. Um, and, of course, go to our great sponsors, truenutrition.com. You can use our code THINK. It'll get you some savings. Uh, you get some good performance supplements there, intro workouts. I'm using MPA Muscle Intrusion now, which has been mm. one of my favorites. I love the flavor of that stuff, the lemon ice flavor. What do you got over there? You got uh, isopoofs. Uh, oh, you got the cereal. You got Yeah. So MPA Muscle Intrusion is a true nutrition product. That's Matt Porter's formula. Yeah. Uh, and I think yeah. he put that together before he even started his his own company. But he, uh, I think he did, yeah. Yeah, but shout out yeah, to Great I, Products and shout out to Matt Porter and shout I out to True Matt, Nutrition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he was one person that I never had on the podcast. He, uh, I uh, think he he gotten burnt by another podcast and he didn't really know me and so uh, uh, he didn't. I, I I had asked him once and he never really responded. But whatever, you know, yeah. great guy, uh, awesome education too that he had shared with us uh in our world which is what i really appreciate about him uh and of course check out uh, supplementsource.ca if you're in canada you can uh get all sorts of great supplements there for a good discount uh amino asylum if you go there use our code think you get uh 20 off dude i'm loving their l-carnitine still i'm making sure i actually have to go take it right now so with that said have to Yes. With that said, uh, for another episode of Muscle Minds <laughs> with Scott Stevenson, I'm Scott McNally, guys. We'll see you soon. Thanks a lot, Scott. Adios. Thank you, brother.